Wonderful. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the London School of Economics for this evening's event. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And it's a great pleasure for me, and a very personal pleasure, to welcome Professor Branko Milanovic to the LSE today. As you are probably aware, Branko is most known for working on income distribution and inequality. And he has provided a distinctly global perspective to those very important issues. He's currently visiting presidential professor at the Graduate Center at City University in New York. And before that, he was the lead economist in the research department at the World Bank, where he and I worked together for, and have known each other and been friends for about 30 years, which dates both of us. <laughs> Branco has written a series of books uh, which have been incredibly influential. First, Global Equality, a new framework for the, the age of globalization. Then, The Haves and the Have-Nots, a brief and idiosyncratic history of global inequality. And tonight, he'll talk about his latest book, Capitalism Alone, the future of the system that rules the world. I'm also pleased to announce that Branko will be joining us here at the London School of Economics at the Institute for International Inequality in 2020 as a centennial professor at the LSE. This event is hosted by the International Institute for Inequality as part of its research theme on wealth, elites, and tax justice led by Professor Mike Savage, and it's part of a wider program here at the LSE called Shape the World, which draws on our LSE strategy, but will be the theme of our LSE festival, which we will hold in March from the 2nd to the 7th, which is open to the public and an opportunity for us to think about how the social sciences can make the world a better place. The full program will be online in January. Now for those, some logistics, for those who are Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE wealth, and I'd ask you to put your phones on silent. Uh, this event will be recorded and will be available on a podcast if we have no technical glitches. And as usual, after the lecture, there'll be an opportunity for the audience to ask questions. Branko will also be signing copies of his book here on stage afterwards, uh, and there will be copies available for you to purchase. So with that, let me welcome Branko Milanovic, who will talk to us about capitalism alone. Well, thank you very much, Minush. Thank, thank you for the first to the Institute for International Inequalities for the invitation, to Minush also for the invitation. And I, of course, have to say that, as always, I'm extremely happy to be in London and to be at LSE. There is obviously something very special, I think, about LSE, about the students, about the faculty, about the location of the place, and about the really sustained interest in inequality studies, even when they were not very popular or very few people sort of cared about. Uh, so it is, as I said, a special place. Now, I'm going to speak, as, as Minoj said, I'm going to speak about my new book. It is a book which still deals, well, I mean, broadly speaking, actually, mostly speaking, uh, uh, about inequality. But it's a little bit different from the, the ones that uh, I did in the past, which were really rather, 
I would not say narrow, little sort of focused on inequality, but dealt only practically with inequality, whether it is inequality between the states, between the countries, or uh, within the countries, or global inequality. This one is a little bit more political because it actually deals with capitalism and inequality in two types of capitalism that I actually will then introduce it in a second. Obviously, this is the sort of commercial break so that you don't uh, sort of miss the uh, in getting the book as you walk out. Uh, and let me then say something which is maybe unusual. I would start this talk, it's an unusual talk because I have to start the talk essentially by saying what parts of the book I will not cover in the talk. The book covers quite a lot, so uh, uh, for one presentation I had really to decide what I would like to cover. And then to give you an idea what the book contains, here is the structure of the book, I'm not going to read all of that, but the key, uh, the two key chapters are the one about liberal or, or and meritocratic capitalism, which I will explain in a minute what it means, then and on political capitalism. Then these are the chapters two and three. Then chapter four is the interaction between capitalism and globalization, and chapter five deals more with the topics of our how should I say, of the commodification of our daily life and it is more speculative or maybe or maybe more philosophical than the, than the rest of the book. So the themes which will not be covered in this talk because it would really focus on inequality in liberal or meritocratic capitalism. So the themes will, which not, will not be covered but they give the title to the book is First, the universal, as I call it here, universal geographical de de uh, domination of capitalism is the only mode of production. And that's actually contained, obviously, in the title of the book. Capitalism, I believe, you can argue, simply empirically, is now the single mode of production, way of organizing production all around the world. I know that it would immediately lead to the questions about China. There is a whole chapter which actually talks about China and actually talks about the genealogy of the political or the origin of political capitalism and why political capitalism, who is representative is China, I believe well, there are many others, but China is obviously the most important one, is different from liberal capitalism. But they are both capitalists in the sense of a very narrow definition of capitalism that they use, which comes from Marx and Max Weber as well, which contains only three elements, and they are uh, that the most of production be carried on privately owned means of production, that labor be hired labor, so capital does the hiring of labor, not the other way around, and that the production and the, co that the coordination rather be decentralized. So these are very uh, sort of essential and very, in some way, uh, sort of, uh, rather narrow definition of capitalism because it may not include other things that maybe some other people would like to have included. It's parsimonious definition. And if you use that parsimonious definition, you do actually find that China, this is a topic I will not talk today, but you will see that in chapter three, that China is indeed a capitalist country because most of the labor force is working in private companies. It's actually more than 90% of labor force is working in the private sector. Uh, most of the fixed investment is done by the private companies and most of the value added, something between 75 and 80% of value added or GDP is produced in the private sector. So in that chapter, because I actually talked about how 
political capitalism came to be and how I define it, I do one thing which is, I would say, maybe in some sense the most uh, either original or uh, most uh, contentious part of the book. I do something which I, I try to actually see what was the global historical role of communism. So I will not talk about that today. It is very much within the Marxist framework that is studied, but with the maybe unexpected results of how I see the role of communism, particularly in less developed and colonized societies. And the one part also which I will not speak, which I already mentioned, that was the chapter five, which is another type of domination of capitalism. The first one was geographical. The second one is domination of capitalism in our private lives and the value system which made that domination or the existence of capitalism is the only mode of production possible. So these are really, I, would, I like to think when I say that capitalism is really now at the peak of its power, I like to actually say it in both terms, in terms of geographical coverage, but I think also in terms of its ability to actually make us have the value system which perpetuates that domination and uh, the sort of uh, uh, power of capitalism in our daily lives. Now, having said about what I'm not going to speak about, let me then say what, I mean, let me start with a discussion of uh, liberal or meritocratic capitalism. In order to do that, and actually let's call it, like we can even call it Western capitalism, you know, I'm not really, I don't care very much how you want to call it. it I would use quite a lot of examples from the United States, but also from other rich countries. But just to sort of fix the ideas, let, uh, the, you can think of the classical type, Ricardo Marx type of capitalism, which is very simple in some sense. If you look at Ricardo, even if you look at uh, Smith, you basically have three, or, or to simplify it for my, our purposes, two classes. You have workers and you have capitalists. Obviously the landlords were the third class, but we are going to just keep the two of them now. And it's a very simple social structure because all workers are only workers. They don't have ownership of capital. All capitalists are only capitalists. They are not actually working as wage laborers half of the time. They don't work as wage laborers at all. So it's very simple. And the assumption which is made is all capitalists are richer than all workers. Uh, very often when I teach my class on inequality, uh, people kind of wonder, they say, well, you start teaching because I teach interpersonal inequality. And really the first person who actually did empirical work with that is Pareto. So they said, well, how come that a very right-wing guy was the first guy who really got interested in interpersonal inequality? Well, the reason why Marx, for example, has very little about that, almost nothing, is because for him, the world, as for Ricardo, was very simple. There were these two classes, and they were very different, and they were in a very different position in income distribution, so there was no need to actually go and study interpersonal income inequality. In liberal and what we can call modern capitalism, meritocratic capitalism, as you will see there will be differences there. The, what is important now to realize is that we, don't, we have now people who have both labor income and capital income. But the important distinction with the next one, which I will show in a moment, different type of capitalism, is that people who, have, who are rich have greater share of their income received from ownership. So it's not only that they have more 
income from ownership, more income from capital. Their share of their total income, which they receive from capital, is higher. This is going to play a very important role, which I will argue, because the fact that you have the rising share of your income derived from capital as you, go, as you become richer means that when you have a macro, at the macro level, at the national account level, increase in the overall importance of income from capital, you have a quasi-automatic transmission of inequality from the functional side of the inequality between capital and labor into interpersonal side. So this is something I will explain that once again in a minute, but this is something which is going to play a very important role in my discussion. So a, a, a different possible type of capitalism which would actually break that quasi-automatic link from the rising capital share in national uh, income into interpersonal inequality would be a capitalism where inequality would still exist but the shares of income that people receive from capital would not vary in function of their income level. In other words, you would have, let's say theoretically, you can have 15% of capital income if you're poor and 15% of capital income if you're rich. Obviously, your total income would be different. Rich people would have five times, ten times more than the poor people, but income shares from capital and labor would be the same. So I would actually spend quite some time sort of talking about that, and there is a finally another possibility is when you actually have what I call egalitarian capitalism, where not only everybody has the same share, but everybody has the same endowments. So technically speaking, then in that case, you have everybody having more or less the same income, and you actually don't even have inequality. And you may not even have the role of the state because there is no redistribution of the current income. So this is why I have this really strange line, last line, which says libertarianism, capitalism, and socialism close, come close to each other. And they indeed do in such a sort of a utopic society. So I will not talk about the utopic society, about utopias, but I will talk about meritocratic or liberal capitalism and people's capitalism. Now, uh, I have to say that the terms meritocratic and liberal are not kind of used in an everyday context. I actually take them directly from Rawls. In Rawls, when he talks about equalities, he actually has meritocratic equality, which was really simply requirement that there should not be legal constraints to you earning an income or having a position in a society that is not allowed to you otherwise. I suppose when you have feudalism, when you had different orders of society, if you were not nobility, you would not accede to a certain position. But meritocratic simply means there is no legal impediments. So it doesn't mean that it's something that you deserve. It's actually a relatively limited level of sort of equality. Uh, uh, a liberal is uh, more equal in some sense because it corrects for two uh, exogenous factors. One, by having public education, it actually opens schooling system to everybody. And secondly, by taxing inheritance, it reduces sort of differences in income which are due to the background. So this is where the terms come, just to be very clear about that. The term political capitalism comes from Max Weber again. So again, I really didn't want to actually start inventing and putting the terms uh, randomly. I preferred actually to take the terms as they were defined before. 
So let me, in the distribution in classical capitalism looks, as I was ex already explaining, it looks like that on the horizontal axis you have income, you have distribution of workers, there are some richer workers, there are some poorer workers, and then you have the distribution of capitalists. Again, there are some richer capitalists, some poorer capitalists. But notice that the distributions are what is called non-overlapping, which means that there is no capitalist who is poorer than a worker, and there is no worker who is richer than any capitalist. So that's actually obviously a sort of uh, simplified uh, picture of society. Those society probably existed like that, but I need to sort of make this uh, simplified, ideal, typical forms in order to, to, I think, explain better what actually, what I'm aiming to. Differently, you can imagine that here is the same idea, but now I rank everybody according to their income. So labor income, as you can see, goes up. There are richer people who also are workers. So as you go up, you are actually better off because the income level is on your vertical axis. But then only when all the workers have exhausted themselves and there is no other worker remaining there, you have then capital income kicking in. Uh, notice also, and I intentionally did it in this very simple slide, uh, people actually now have, particularly physicists, interestingly, they actually link income inequality to physical processes, and some of them argue that for the 95% of people, you can actually use the usual distribution, which is log normal distribution, to, you know, sort of uh, approximate their incomes. But for the top people, where capital is much more important, they use more uh, steeper distributions, exponential or Pareto. So this is a little bit what you see on this very, very simple graph. You see the distribution of capital income and people who receive that capital income increasing very rapidly. The difference I've already mentioned is the difference between now, we will move now from, the from very simple uh, Ricardo Marx capitalism to meritocratic capitalism. Now, what is the difference there? I assume labor income stays the same. So let's not change. We again have poor workers, you know, middle class workers, rich workers. But what is now important is that for a while, for maybe 30 to 50% of the population, you have zero capital income. But after a certain point, capital income starts, kicks in. So what you notice here is that actually there are people on the horizontal axis who would actually have both capital income and labor income. But what you notice there also, as you move more to the right and actually you become richer, you have more of capital income and capital income becomes dominant. And maybe at some point, actually, if you were at the very, very top of the income distribution, capital income becomes practically the sole income that you have. As I was saying before, the problem with that kind of distribution, which is very common, and I'll show you the data for, for real countries, is that the distribution as shown here implies that the inequality or the Gini coefficient or the concentration coefficient of uh, income from capital is higher than the, than the concentration coefficient or the Gini coefficient of income from labor. So what happens when the share of capital income in total goes up? What happens, as I was saying before, is that inequality almost automatically increases. So this is one of the issues, and there are, oh, this is one of these systemic features that we have in the 
last 30 or 40 years is that the rising share of capital in national accounts, in national income, is quasi-automatically transmitted into the higher interpersonal inequality. Now, how can it be, and this is actually simply factual uh, sort of uh, actual numbers from the UK and the, United, and the US, the blue line is this is Gini coefficient of capital, the red line is Gini distribution of labor. Now you notice, for example, in the case of the UK, and I will not discuss this today, but you notice that very sharp increase in the red line which happened in the 1980s and up to the early 1990s. And after that, the red line is flat. But notice that in both cases, and you will see more cases like that, and practically all countries have the same structure, you have the blue line, which is inequality of capital income, way above the red line. So uh, the, the Gini coefficient of the blue line of capital income is between a 0 0.85, 0 0.95, and labor income inequality is between 0 0.4, 0 0.5. So we have twice as high inequality in distribution of capital income as labor income. Now, how would it look in people's capitalism? Again, laborers, when we assume them, they again work as before. They are again poor, richer, even those who are doing very well, simply from wages. But how would then capital income look? Capital income would also increase, for in a very simple case, with your position in income distribution. But you would not have a higher share of capital income as you become richer. So the capital share would remain constant. Now in that sort of simplified world, that means that the Gini coefficient of capital and labor are the same. So even if you have, and I think this is a feature of rich societies, as they become richer, they not only have more wealth, they have more wealth compared to their current income or GDP than poorer societies. I'll maybe show you towards the end. If you look at Switzerland, Switzerland has income to GDP ratio of eight. Uh, India has income to GDP ratio of three. Now, that simply means that the richer countries, and of course it's not only to two countries, you have 100 countries and you line them up, they practically all have higher capital to income ratio as you become richer. Simply you accumulate more capital and the ratio between your capital and income becomes then higher. As that ratio becomes higher, that means that the, 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 assuming that the rate of return on your capital doesn't go down sufficiently, you have simply higher share of total national income from capital and inequality goes up. So in a situation of, of people's capitalism, that would not happen. Inequality would remain, but there will be no automatic transmission from, uh, from, functional, from functional distribution into interpersonal. So let me just, for comparative purposes and to kind of fix the ideas, to say how would it look in socialism. Technically in socialism, let's suppose labor still stays the same, you know, that you have poor laborers and rich laborers, but the capital income is distributed equally on a per capita basis. You can imagine that actually the state owns, as it was actually discussed for many years in the 1920s or even earlier, I mean from the all the, you remember these uh, debates with Baron uh, and uh, with Lange, with the uh, um, uh, Lange-Lerner model and everybody else. The assumption was the state owns the capital, all the capital stock. Everybody is an equally participating in the capital stock, which means everybody gets the same, not only share, but everybody gets the same amount. In that society, interestingly, if you have the increase in the capital share in GDP, it reduces inequality. 
because in a, a society like that, you actually have an increase in income, which is in absolute terms equal for everybody. So it is simply, I'm not saying it's a realistic picture, but I'm just saying we need to fix our ideas to see where the different types of societies are. So anyway, so this is basically the, the summary that the, you know, in a classical capitalism, only capitalist, capitalists have income from capital and they're all rich. In meritocratic capitalism, the richer one is, the more of that income, or his or her income, comes from capital. In people's capitalism, the shares of capital and labor are fixed throughout the distribution. And in socialism, everybody gets the same amount of income from capital. So how does it look in real life? So this is where I go and now move to the real life and try to link what we have seen in this ideal typical systems to what we actually observe empirically in actual countries. So let me then go quickly because I, I, I'm, I'm looking the, the, this clock, uh, uh, six systemic inequalities in liberal meritocratic capitalism. I'm not going to read them now, you can actually read them and it would save us time, uh, even if I speak fast, uh, it would save us time if I don't read them. But they would all come one by one. The first one, which I already mentioned, simply based on the work of, a numerous, of numerous authors, is we have over the last 30 years, particularly in rich countries and advanced economies, we have the rising macro share of income from capital. So this is, I took one example from the work by Matthew Wrongly, but you know, there you can probably have like 40 papers or maybe more, 50 papers like that. The second point is that the, uh, uh, both capital and labor have become more unequally distributed and capital is uh, always more unequally distributed than labor. I've shown you before already the, the pictures for the US and the UK. As you can see, they go in the case of the United States all the way to 1974. Here I added Norway and Germany. Simply in every country, and we have, I work also with Luxembourg Income Study, we have about uh, 40 advanced economies all of them have this blue line above the, the red line, inequality of, this, of uh, distribution of capital income is significantly larger, actually twice as high, generally speaking, in terms of the Gini coefficient as labor. So that's what you have seen. You can actually do it now differently, you know, by looking at individual countries in a year around 2015. There are some interesting outliers I will not speak of them today, but Taiwan is an interesting outlier with relatively lower, these are not much lower, but lower inequality of both income from capital and labor. But if you look at the advanced Western countries, they are really a cluster. There is not that much of a difference. You know, some of them like Great Britain and Greece actually more unequal and Japan, but you know, they are still a cluster. So now we go to the next systemic inequality is that higher rate of return on the assets of the rich. That I think is extremely important and interesting because all that I've said before about the automatic transition, uh, tra uh, uh, transmission from uh, macro side into interpersonal inequality assumed that the rate of return is constant regardless of whether I have $1,000 as wealth or I have $5 million. There are arguments now to say that actually people who are richer have higher return. Now, if this is the, the case, then that tendency for the transmission to higher interpersonal inequality would be actually reinforced, would be exacerbated. Because if the rich not only 
with a rising share of capital not only become in terms of their overall income richer than the others, but the, the rate of return becomes higher. That's a, uh, that gives them a double advantage. Now, that returns can, be, can become higher. This is a graph from Ed Wolf, kind of complicated graph, but the point is, as you can see here at the summary, is that in the composition of assets, the rich people, which means really the top 5%, have most of their assets in financial instruments. Everybody else who has assets, which is below that group, has mostly uh, housing assets. So then it becomes race between financial assets and housing assets. According to Ed Wolf, there was a slight advantage to financial assets returns over housing in the last 60 years in the United States. So that, of course, additionally would uh, sort of give an additional advantage to the rich. There is another thing which is actually even more interesting, is that within even the same asset class, which is really financial assets, there are arguments and there are some empirical studies, although there are very few, I must say at least ones that I know are very few, that argue that the size of these assets matters, so on larger assets you have higher return even adjusting for risk. You can imagine why rich people might actually have higher returns, so I don't need to go into that, but you will you see immediately that it really provides another channel whereby income inequality is, is driven up through, uh, 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 as you have the rising share of capital in total, total income. So let me then more move to the part three, which is actually, I spent quite a lot of time on that in my book, I even had to invent the name for that, and I, I invented, obviously, because what other names are we going to invent, but you use two Greek terms and put them together and hope they, they do make sense. And I checked with my Greek friends, and they were not totally convinced, but they said it's, we cannot find out something better, so take that. And it's called uh, homoplutia. Homoplutia means technically the s same wealth, but it means that actually we have more and more people who have high income, both from labor and capital. So think of this, we are now in that sense at a very different point from that Ricardo Marx system. In the Ricardo Marx system, there was no capitalist who had high labor income. In this case, empirically, we have, as you can see on this graph, 30% of Americans who are in the top decile by labor income and in the top decile by capital income. So this is a new development, as, as you can see actually here, that percentage has risen from 1980 when it was 15 to 30 percent. Now how does it look, and actually it's an interesting question, how does it look across countries? So I used Luxembourg Income Survey data, and you notice here that of course most of the countries have high percentage of people who are both labor and capital rich. I'm not going to go into now speculation why it happened, because I think many of you can, can figure this out. It, the, the channel can be through inheritance into high labor incomes, or the other channel could be from high labor incomes and saving into high capital incomes. But notice, which is actually interesting also, that countries do not have very high share of capital and labor rich individuals, are relatively poor and less advanced countries, in this case Mexico and Brazil, which are closer to what you might have in a case of uh, uh, classical Ricardo Marx capitalism. In Ricardo Marx capitalism, this number should be zero. But imagine that that number were to be 100. That would mean that everybody who is at the top in labor income is also 
in the top in capitalism. It becomes much more difficult to deal with that type of inequality than with other types because you actually have a very strong sort of deserved, earned element which you don't have in the case of classical capitalism where the rich people are only people who own capital and they don't work. So this is, I think, an important development of modern capitalism that we have more people of, uh, who are both rich in capital and labor. Another element of, of modern or, or meritocratic or liberal capitalism is one that many of you have read, and I will also go quickly over that, although the data are new data which look at the U.S., and it's the, on the assortative mating. The, what, you what is shown in this graph is that you take cohorts, in this case young male, between uh, 25, I think 20 and 35 years of age in 1970s and all the other years that you can read and look what percentage of them have married women who are in the, the, uh, in the top decile by labor earnings. So I'm sorry I have forgotten to say these are young males who are in the top decile of male earners. As you see here in 1970, the likelihood of them marrying equivalently rich women in the top decile of women earning was 13.4%, and it was about the same as their likelihood of marrying women from the bottom decile of women's earnings. As you see very clearly, the ratios really change very significantly, so the probability of men marrying nowadays women who are actually of the same status in terms of women distribution is three to one compared between the rich women and poor women. I mean, I just simplified. I just, when I say rich women, I mean women who are young and who are in the top earning decile uh, of women's distribution. Uh, again, you can imagine what is the mechanism. It has been studied. There are actually disputes on the mechanism and all that, so I will not talk about this simply also because I'm running out of time, but I want to show you that it is even more dramatic when you look at women. The ratio for women, which was one to one, very similar to men's, has now become five to one. So in other words, the preference for people of the same either education status or income has significantly increased. Now again, you immediately realize that if you have that development, there is very little, of course you cannot do anything about that development, but that development by itself is going to increase and exacerbate inequality. Uh, one of my objectives, I have to say this parenthetically, by bringing homogamy and homoplutia was also, well first because they are real, but it was also to indicate that when you speak of fighting inequality or actually um, trying to, to check the increase in inequality, it's not always very simple because there are certain phenomena, like for example homogamy, which are uh, basically, I would put it quote-unquote good because they are a result of choice of the partners whom do they want to marry. Probably before they had much less choice or maybe the parents made a choice for them and now they make it themselves. So it's a good development. Homoplutia is also fundamentally good development because you break that, that very strong uh, cleavage between rich capitalists and poor workers. But both of them add to inequality. So, you know, you may not have only bad developments leading to inequality. You might have something, quote-unquote, which is desirable development also leading to inequality. 
uh, final point, this is uh, from, a, uh, from a book by Martin Gillens, is a very famous graph, I will not explain the details, but it basically what it says is that actually political issues that matter to the rich are the ones that are being debated and taken on board, and political issues that matter to the middle class really don't, match, don't have much salience unless they coincide with the, with the issues that matter to the rich. The implication of all of this is then to lead to the last point is that the, the forces, systemic forces which lead to an increase in inequality, in turn lead also the rich to the control of the political process, which then in turn means that the rich are able to convey the advantages that they have acquired through inheritance, connection, and schooling to the children. So you then have a sort of a creation or of a self-sustaining upper class which is based on basically three steps. Forces, systemic forces which, which lead to the rising inequality, ability of the rich to buy political outcomes, and the ability of the rich to actually convey or to transmit the advantages to their offspring and to eliminate maybe others who might not be able to actually give these advantages to their children. Uh, I will have to, to finish in one, in probably, Minosh, uh, how many minutes do I have? Two minutes. Okay. I'll multiply it by two. Uh, I'll finish in two and a half. But I, uh, uh, then you have actually, when you see that, and I called it actually in the book, I call it tying the knot on political power. You see that the political power and the concentration, particularly because they use the US case, of, uh, of political contributions, and we have actually very interesting papers looking at the top 1% and the top 100th of 1%. The concentration of political contributions is probably the highest concentration of any variable that I've seen. You cannot almost have a concentration with variable which is like that. On top of that, we have now, uh, thanks to work by Chetty, Esaias, and others, we have extremely strong empirical data that show huge concentration between the, uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in education where you have top schools essentially being the schools for the top 1%. The ratio between the likely, they actually have about 12 top schools in the United States, the ratio between the, those who are in top 1% and the middle deciles is between 60 to 70 to 1. So that's the likelihood of the somebody who is in the top 1% and somebody who is in the middle class in the US of having children in those schools. So this is empirical stuff. So when you have that kind of empirical stuff, when you have the control of the political process where the contributions are so heavily concentrated, and when you have the uh, concentration on the, and the educational level where basically the best schools, either the best schools or the be most uh, sort of famous schools, are generally serving the rich and the high level of tuition is used as a monopoly way, as a sort of monopoly tool to essentially exclude others, then you basically have a creation, I think, a movement towards the creation of a self-sustaining elite and towards plutocracy. So my point, I will, I will maybe have the time to talk about ways maybe to, uh, to counteract these forces because of course I have that too, but I think that basically if you let the system go the way it is, with the systemic forces, with the ability to control political process, and the ability to transmit 
all the advantages, you really move gradually from this liberal meritocratic capitalism into a very plutocratic, different plutocratic capitalism. So let me finish on that very sort of optimistic note. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Branko. Let me, um, let me start and then I'll open it up to the audience. You did end on a very pessimistic note because your, your sort of combination of, I love this word, homoplutia, uh, assortative- It will become very famous word. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> I'm planning to use it a lot. It will sound very <laughs> impressive. So homoplutia, homogamy, where basically you have assortative mating. So the elites have get income from capital and labor. They they marry other elites, they pass those privileges to their children, and they control the political system and the rules of the game. The rigidity of that system compared to what, say, Marx or Ricardo talked about is far greater. In, in some ways, uh, you could, it was easier to imagine change in a simpler world. So you, you tempted us at the end by saying you had some thoughts about how change could happen in this much more rigid system which generates ever greater inequality. What are those thoughts? Well, first, uh, thank you, Minush, for bringing this out because I really only, I think that there is, uh, maybe because we have gotten out of that original Mar Ricardo Marx rigid system, but the current systems to me seems more difficult to reject in principle, but it generates all these negative effects that we really don't like because, as you were saying, that actually leads to the control of the political process. Rich people marry each other. They both have capital and labor. They actually, we have empirical data that actually these people even work longer hours. Yeah. So you actually feel, you know, there is no, uh, this, this ethical or moral element is in many instances lacking to go after that. And so it is, I think, uh, it might seem strange, but I think it's more difficult politically to get out of that system than might have been out of a system which seemed to us now to have been visibly uh, bad or rigged or unfair. Uh, so I will, you know, I will be brief. There are many of the things which already other people have mentioned, but I want to say that uh, I believe the, the bottom line is the following. I think that the uh, instruments that have been used in the 20th century, which led to the creation of welfare state and, and so forth, which are four, uh, uh, high taxation, high transfers, uh, large trade unions, and increased education, that these four elements which are basically creating redistributive process of the current income have become much weaker or cannot be increased sufficiently to counteract the forces that I was describing. I will not go into discussion, and it was discussed by many other people, why I think that the, 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 the force of this element is now less than it was in the 20th century. And that's why I believe that we have to focus on endowments, or what some people call pre-redistribution. And to not to kind of talk too much, I will just to say that means a deconcentration of ownership of capital. That's a big word, but it means essentially the middle class should have much more capital than it does now. And you can imagine forms, you know, you can imagine tax policy, employee stock ownership plans, you know, uh, the French call uh, l'actionariat salarial. Uh, you can Im imagine inheritances, thing that actually uh, Tony Atkinson suggested. And even Aristotle, I found out, actually suggested that, you know, 400 BC. 
so these are deconcentration capital allocation. The second one is to work on education where the access to the best schools would no longer be served only to the people who are basically have parents who are rich. So that you break that link. And there is a very dramatic graph in uh, Saez and Cheney uh, 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 paper which actually shows the, uh, the horizontal axis income of the parents and the vertical axis percentage of kids who go to university education. And it's actually like, mm -hmm. like, a, like a straight line. So these are then the two actions I think that one, in my opinion, should have focused. Okay. Tax endowments and education. All right, let me open the floor up to questions and comments. And if you could introduce yourself and be brief. Uh, and I need some women. Okay, I, I'll take the gentleman upstairs there and I'll come down here to Robert. Uh, and I'd like to have a woman. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm Mario Quenda. I'm from the Economic History Department, doing a PhD here. Uh, thank you very much for your talk and um, for your description of capitalism. And I was thinking about the situation in Chile right now. And um, some people were saying that's actually uh, what is happening and the fact that there is a meritocratic process and they're not feeling including part of it. And so I have two questions. Firstly, is do you think that we need to see this kind of rebellion happening before we see some kind of changes because you're talking about elites and reinforcing. And um, my second question is with regard to the solutions you've proposed, I know that Piketty has published a book recently in French and he's, he said much more clearly that what needs to be um, addressed is the issue of capital and uh, who owns capital. So what do you think that your Options are better than his or the other way around. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll take Robert and then the woman in the back here and then I'll return to Branco. Robert. I have a simple question uh, with a difficult answer. Could you just explain how your analysis of inequality differs from that of a kind of mainstream neoclassical economist? What is the difference in your approach? Okay. And the woman in the back? Uh, thank you for this blistering tour de force talk. Very enjoyable, as always. Um, quick question. I've heard uh, talk about there being kind of a slowdown in, pro uh, in growth in the richer countries, um, uh, pushing the frontier of innovation, maybe slowing down. Do you think a stagnation in growth will focus people's attention on pre-distribution? Okay, thank you very much. Oh, nice, sorry. easy LSE question. Yes, very, very, very nice questions. <laughs> on, on Chile, of course, this is a, uh, I tweeted actually on Chile recently, like yesterday or day before, and it got lots of attention from people of, in Latin America, obviously from Chile especially, but also from Argentina because of the elections that are coming. Uh, but on Chile, I would like to say the following thing, if, if you don't follow me on Twitter, so <laughs> I, I'll tell you then. <laughs> Uh, because I have global income distribution. I'm just updating now. I now have for 2014 for 135 countries approximately. That's not actually published, so I just have it on my laptop. So when the thing in Chile happened, I knew that Chile actually has very high inequality. But I didn't look carefully like I don't know who is at what level. Now, the striking thing about Chile is the following. If you take the bottom 5% and say, okay, there is X amount of income that they have. 
what is another country where people who are at the bottom 5% have the same level of income? Well, that other country, there are several, four or five, but one of them is Mongolia. So the bottom people in Chile are as poor as the bottom people in Mongolia. But then you go to the top, and you take top 2%. And the top 2% in Chile are, obviously, the global top 1%, but they have income which is equal to the income of the German top 2%. So, I mean, this is like the end of the story. You don't need much more to realize that something is wrong there. And you probably have seen today Piñera sort of apologizing and saying, well, we never really looked at inequality. We will be much more inclusive from now on. <laughs> uh, so, um, I, I, maybe he also read my tweet. Who knows? Uh, uh, but on, on, uh, on, uh, on capital, what you asked me, uh, well, it's, it's a difficult question. You know, I've read uh, Piketty's book, and of course I've read the previous one, and uh, uh, there is, of course, quite a lot of uh, emphasis on the importance of wealth and importance of taxing wealth or, and also importance of not of having synchronized or coordinated policy so that the wealth holders and companies and individuals cannot basically play jurisdictions, you know, well, the, and basically pay no taxes as they are doing now. I, I don't address that. I, I didn't have the time to say this. Obviously, I think it's extremely important, but my whole approach was to look at these different typical types of capitalism from the point of view of distribution. So I leave the production and I leave obviously jurisdictional uh, you know, competition on, on uh, tax rates. I don't discuss it, but I, actually, I believe absolutely that it is extremely important and it is sometimes also mind-boggling when you see that these large companies, Bernie Sanders uh, listed like four companies, I think Starbucks, Google, whatever, they paid like zero federal tax and you just cannot believe this is Amazon, I think, and so on. Uh, Robert, Robert has a very difficult question, so I have to sort of uh, really skip this question, how different it is from neoclassical, to say that basically I think neoclassicals would not really address the question. I actually think when we discussed that before, and maybe it's kind of a generalization, but in a, neo, in a really very rigid neoclassical framework, inequality really is not a, a topic, because endowments are outside of the process, so they are not dealing with that. So you were born rich or you studied, but we are not dealing. We have a general equilibrium model. The general equilibrium model determines the prices for the endowments, end of story. So if I think inequality is simply multiplication income is rate of return times K plus W times L, they say, well, R rate of return, W is determined within my system. You got your K from somewhere. I don't know how you got it and I'm not interested in that, and L you also got from somewhere, that's end of story. So I think that would be the difference between people who have been working on inequality and those who have ignored it. Um, <laughs> and on uh, secular stagnation and uh, lower growth, I do think actually that to some extent the interest of inequality was spurred precisely because of the slowdown of growth in, in Western countries. And uh, it's actually interesting that that interest here has been spurred by, of course, two elements, I believe. 
the, the crisis of 2007-2008, slower growth, and the realization that behind the crisis you had very high inequality, which was known, but you know it was never really, it had never percolated into political space. And so I believe that actually if slow growth continues, and I want now to bring my, just one sentence to bring my hat as a global type of person, and also, as more and more people from the rising and richer Asia start entering in the top quintile of the global income distribution, you would have in currently rich and advanced countries people who would be really now at the 50th, 70th, 80th, and 100th percentile of income distribution, which was something new because for two centuries, rich countries had basically people who were in the top quintile of the global income distribution. And so that would be a yet another, uh, uh, how should I say, adjustment to make to the, to the rising emerging economies. Okay, let me take another round of questions. Gentlemen here. the last bit of your speech about inequality. Namely, it seems to me that uh, the sort of closing of, of uh, the socioeconomic elite that you were describing has to do uh, with access to things such as education, but also it might have to do something with access to political power and to office and to electability and so on. And um, I know that you brought, you brought up uh, Pareto a lot and it just reminded me of the, of the theory of elite cycles and how um, one elite's uh, closing off may precipitate the formation of a counter elite or an outsider elite. And I wonder whether the phenomenon of populism might be uh, uh, explained by, by reference to some of what, you're, what you said today. Okay, thank you. Woman up so my name is Andrea Laverde. I just finished the Master's in Inequality at the Inequalities Institute. Uh, my question has to do with the, what you were talking about, the morality of inequality and how you justify it or not, and the different systems of capitalism. So you talked about Brazil and Mexico and how they have more of a traditional capitalism, just as you explained Chile. And then you talked about uh, how in meritocratic capitalism it is harder to to fight inequality because of its justification. Uh, I am, uh, my question has to do if you think there's a diff, like what, what will happen with capitalism and what says the last chapter of your book will have any influence on, on the type of capitalism that nowadays these countries have and the justification they have for what inequality Okay, excellent questions. Let me try, uh, if I took too much time the previous time, let me, I'll be briefer now. Uh, 
is there a difference between the U.S.? Actually, I'm using mostly the U.S. data because they're first more extreme. So it's actually nicer to use more extreme because it's actually, you know, more dramatic. Uh, but, but I think the basic issue, and of course it's studied quite a lot, but the basic issue I think is similar to all countries, not only, you know, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, the former communist countries, where you basically have no rules of the political process and of the um, uh, campaign, campaign financing and where everybody knows that essentially if you don't use money which is either your own or more likely actually given to you by somebody, then you have no chance of political success. And let me just mention that in the case of, of Western Europe, if you look at the last 20 years, basically all different uh, uh, scandals which have led to the resignation or fall of governments including Berlusconi, Craxi before him, uh, Kohl in Germany, Sarkozy in France, Chirac in France. They were all related to campaign financing. So it was not that the people were just simply stealing money for themselves. They might just take a little bit. But uh, uh, essentially, they need that in order to compete in the political process, because without that, they will be wiped out. So I think that, uh, that link between the, the rich elite and the uh, provi who are providers of money, there were actually several books now in France about Macron, for example, and his links with very rich, the richest families in France. So that's something which is, I think, very common. Now, I've talked only now about the West, but you have the same situation elsewhere, um, take Tha uh, Thailand, for example, which is very similar to, to Piñera, you have again, or Berlusconi. Uh, so, but I will stop there, but I think it's a general problem, it's not only a problem of the United States or of, you know, of Europe. Uh, on populism, it's, it's a uh, very good, uh, oh yeah, very good question. Uh, let me first say, well, I'm not sure how much time I have. But first of all, if you check my book, and I think I checked after it was published because it was not done intentionally, I think that I mentioned the word populism once. And the reason why I don't like the word is because it seems to me that it is used in order to essentially say that the system which existed prior to 2007 with two parties which practically became the same, like one party, two wings of one party, was really the only system which is okay, so that everybody else, which now becomes, in the case of Italy, 70% of voters are populists. So some are left-wing populists, others are right-wing populists, but I think actually it loses an ability to identify the phenomenon, because I think it essentially sort of qualifies everybody else as populist and only those people in the center, technocratic and smart people, as kind of normal. And that's why I don't, don't like the term. I think it's actually maybe better to use other terms uh, than, than populism because I don't think it's sufficiently clear. Uh, regarding the elites, I do use actually quite a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I use Pareto. I think that actually Pareto is very relevant, I think, for today's time. It is, the, uh, actually Pareto is a very difficult I think writer first to read, but also to understand and to convey. And for example, when I read many years ago, there are very good lectures by, that Ramon Aron, Raymond Aron gave in 1950s. And one thing that he said, which actually I think students would like that, is he said for the, te for the professors, the teachers, it's very difficult to teach Pareto, because Pareto essentially says that in order for society to exist, you have to tell a narrative which is a lie. So it's very difficult to teach the students that actually we need to be actually to believe in something which we know is not true. 
So in that way, sense, the elite has to hide its real origin and its real intention. And it has to present itself in a narrative, you know, then obviously that was used later by Gramsci in a sort of hegemonic narrative, which is then revealed if you actually go after that narrative, sort of, and try to decompose it or deconstruct it or whatever is the correct word. Uh, so what will happen later? Of course, I, I think one way to, I, uh, let me sort of reiterate what I said before. I think that the forces that I've explained are such that if they're unchecked, they would lead to really de facto plutocratic, plutocratic governance which uh, I would take as a very similar kind of a story that in which, for example, Roman Republic became an empire while keeping all the accoutrements of a republic and senators who were voting for the emperor and so on, but actually, of course, it's changed. We already have regimes that have done this change. You know, you have these regimes like Turkey, like Russia, and so on, where they are multi-party regimes, there are elections, all of that, but in reality, they function very differently. Uh, but what I also didn't have time to speak today, and of course, I don't know, maybe I'll give a different talk, is the role of political capitalism. So that's a totally different topic. I cannot speak about that because it has as much of, of stuff to say as what I was saying today about liberal capitalism. But I have to say that I'm not a believer that you have necessarily an evolution of the it, was, it used to be associated with Fukuyama, that you would have a movement of political capitalism necessarily into liberal capitalism. I believe that the two of them might actually converge where the elites control both political economic power in, in both political and liberal capitalism, although they have come to that power differently. Or you, I, you can imagine that liberal evolves toward plutocracy, or there are many other possibilities. So I would not actually, I, I really cannot tell the future. I, I don't have in a book one sort of scenario which would be uh, followed. But I think that it is interesting if you take, and I know it's totally anecdotal and it might change in six months, but if you take the two uh, uh, presidents of China and the United States, they really illustrate that convergence. In the case of the US, you have a, a wealthy person who became president. In the case of China, you had a political person with, of course, political background of his father who became president and became rich. So eventually, the two powers coalesce, but the origin is different. Interesting. Uh, we're doing fine on time, so I'm going to take the liberty of asking you a question. When you talked about uh, the period in which uh, the welfare state emerged and you identified four forces, high taxes, high transfers, trade unions, and education. When you talked about your solutions about how we could address the current inequality challenges, you didn't, you don't think taxing incomes, increasing transfers, or trade unions are part of the answer. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, it's an excellent question. I, I wish actually, I, yeah, it's an excellent question. I really don't believe that they are the part of the answer. I don't believe because I think that the, with globalization and technological change, we have now entered in the 21st century in a very different environment than one that, that Western Europe and the United, United States faced in the 1930s, especially, and especially after the end of World War II. And let me say the, very briefly the four forces. Uh, uh, trade unions, the decline of trade unions, 
some people try to explain it by inimical legislation. I believe that there are many of these reasons, but I think that the fundamental one is the, the changed nature of production. So I will not go into Fordism and all of that, but I think that's the case. I mean, we have slightly ironical situation that the trade unions which were formed to fight uh, uh, private employers are now spending, actually most of the time, and that's where they're most numerous, fighting the state because that's where they're actually more important in the state sector like health and education than in the private sector. So I don't think it is a force that really, uh, given the, the nature of jobs, given the, that's something to discuss in, in chapter five, the gig economy, given technological progress, given the fact that you actually have remote jobs, that you have groups with uh, very small in size, that you have uh, changes in jobs with the multiple and so on, that will not play a role that it did play. Uh, uh, education played a huge role when you had uh, six years or seven years of education on average and went up to 13 or 14. You don't have that sort of ceiling anymore. That's why actually quality of education and all the stuff that I said about education for me is crucial. And let me just give another, I remember this, another anecdote that I mentioned uh, uh, in a footnote, I believe, because it happened during the, my writing of the book. What was also very revealing, uh, uh, is that, you, for example, I come from a country where you pay professors to give you good grades, right? But. That, that's not happening here. What is here, happening? <laughs> just, just to clarify. No, just. <laughs> but what is happening with this scandal in the US? Uh, you don't, you don't pay professors because there is no point in paying. You pay people to get your kids into that school. And then why you do that? Because when you look at the, at the uh, graduation rates, they are 98 or 99%. So unless you drop out, like Bill Gates did, or you kill your professor or something, there is no point. So really, the, the thing are, we have a revealing features of the system in many instances. We just don't see it because that's where the scandal was. If, the, 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 if actual really success depending on how you do well and not where you are going to school, then bribery would be at the level of professors. That would not be at the level of admission officers. So I think it's a very revealing what really matters. So, uh, the, uh, and what I want to say is then really the importance of education is not increasing the years of education because you don't have that much space for that is actually making the same quality of education available to everybody. So that was the education part. And then finally, tax and transfer. This is my opinion that may be right or wrong, but basically I think that, that uh, the willingness of the middle class to, in, to increase, to be more taxed than it is now, given that higher taxation would be needed to counteract these forces of increasing inequality, I think it's actually not existent. It's non-existent because people just feel they've been taxed enough. They don't believe that the state is doing as good a job as maybe they believed in the 1950s. I think there is much greater cynicism towards the role of the state today than before. And also in the case of global, when you have globalization, you have greater ability to move. So I think actually that if you think that you can actually go and tax the middle class to 60 or 65%, I, I don't think so, that's feasible. Which doesn't mean that I'm, not, that I'm against very high marginal tax on very small number of people, but I don't think that is the answer. Okay. Back to the audience. Uh, gentleman here, gentleman there, and the woman in the back. 
think we've got time for one more rounder to this. Hi there, uh, Andre, I, former student here. I'm sorry, who are you? Oh, sorry, sorry, you're yeah. here, okay. <laughs> Hi, um, good talk. Uh, what is your take on universal basic income? So um, just to alleviate the perceived um, inequalities with the proliferation now of automation um, to, you know, I suppose it's a more libertarian perspective on things when it comes to redistribution. Okay, thank you. Uh, gentlemen, I'll take the woman in the back while the mic is getting to you. Thank you, Shirley from the LSC. Uh, two questions. The first one, you have uh, done the research primarily within two uh, parameters, that's the K and the L. What about the D? As we move into the 21st century, into this digital age, data is going to continue to be understood to become a bigger factor of production for uh, uh, long-term economic growth. So how does data factor into your understanding of capitalism? and uh, in income inequality. Second question, you talked about the convergence of uh, liberal market capitalism that defined the West and uh, state capitalism basically that defines uh, the authoritarian model. So at that convergence point, when they do come together, what would be the optimal political governance model? Thank you. Okay, gentleman here. Yes, Kirk Matt Morris, and my question is, what would you, I'm interested in the name you would coin for Vladimir Putin's newfound Eurasian capitalism. For, for his, what, new? Newfound Eurasian yeah, capitalism. Oh, Eurasian capitalism, capital. ah, I see that, okay. Well, well, that's the new term, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me, okay, let me say on UBI, actually I have a whole section in chapter five on UBI, I will not go through the entire section, you know, the book is actually short, it's 250 pages, but there is lots of stuff there. Uh, but I'm against it. And I'm against because I think uh, there are several grounds. But let me say that, first of all, I'm against because I think that would give a license to the people who are in favor of high inequality and wealthy people and so on to essentially dismiss any other concerns. By saying, you know, you guys do nothing, we would just pay you whatever you need to survive, don't come back to us to talk about inequality. Now, the left, uh, the left of course, believes differently because they believe that they would be able to hitch the tax rate and hence benefit of UBI sufficiently high so there will be increased taxation and there will be actually sufficient income or relatively good, I mean, reasonable income to survive. But I really think when you have such different objectives uh, that the, the outcome is highly uncertain and I think that very often I think it would actually uh, help the, the, the cause of people who don't care about inequality to have UBI. And there are other, I think, arguments I, I would say also that uh, that's a really a, maybe a ethical or moralistic or whatever argument that if you had a society where you have a, a, a part of the people who would not work simply because they are rich and they have high income from capital and then another part really which would, who would not work because they'll be very happy with UBI. Uh, I really believe that that's not something ideal, uh, but it's my view that maybe if you have one third of, of the working age uh, people who would actually not work for these two reasons, either because they are rich anyway or the others who are actually happy with not working and having UBI, uh, I, I think it kind of uh, is uh, not an ideal society, it seems to me. I think work is very important for fulfillment and so on. But, you know, that's kind of a, I, I leave this argument, uh, put it differently because it's not something that is necessarily shared by, by everybody. On, 
on the issue of data, uh, you know, I, I don't, I mean, obviously data and new technology are, is something new and it has real effects on labor, on the distribution between capital and labor income and so forth. But I don't think that there is a third factor of production there. I think that is actually, you know, capital. Or part of that could be labor, but it's not something like the way that we used to have land and uh, land owners as the third factor of production. So I think that actually you can actually treat data and digitalization, technological change within the capital labor framework. As for the convergence, I want to make uh, clear that I'm not arguing that the convergence would necessarily happen. I'm just saying that it could happen because there are many other possibilities. It could happen also that liberal capitalism becomes political capitalism. It could also happen that political capitalism becomes liberal capitalism. And it could happen that the two of them converge. So it's not a prediction that, that would necessarily, we would get there, but I was saying if, if it were, I mean, if some of the trends remain as they are, they could lead to that outcome which looks like convergence. So it's one of the scenarios, not the, the only one. Uh, on Putin and Eurasian capitalism, uh, first, I actually don't, in the, in the book, I, I almost don't discuss Russia at all because I, for me, really, the two most important models and the data come from the US that I was actually talking today, mostly it was uh, U.S. data, as you have seen, and uh, Chinese data. And actually, I had a great pleasure and uh, I think uh, quite a lot of learning myself to do uh, with, I worked on Chinese inequality before, but actually there is much more now, uh, including, for example, the discussion of corruption with numbers in case of China and why I believe that the corruption is an inherent, integral part of the political capitalism. So I discussed that quite a lot. Uh, Russia in that respect is less interesting for me because I don't think it has a model that, you know, that China definitely has. And uh, I, if you were to ask me where I would put, I would put it very close to the political capitalism in many respects and the use, of course, of the political office of private gain and all of that. But I don't think that it, it has a sort of a, uh, uh, how should I say, the origin and the model and the power and the attractiveness that China potentially has. As for the Eurasian, that's an interesting uh, sort of term because it does have a very strong, as you know, political connotation of Russia being different from everybody else. So the Eurasian stuff is really a sort of essentially a, a sort of a, it's a little bit like, like US exceptionalism. It's basically saying we are different, everybody else is like, and Eurasia is saying, it's like the third Rome. We are the third Rome. We are different. So I think this is a geopolitical term. I wanted to ask you something. Uh, Michael Sandel has this mm. wonderful term called meritocratic righteousness. And yeah. it links to the point you were making about how the current system of inequality appears, has the semblance of meritocracy. And so it's very hard to reject it. Uh, but implicit in that is... I'm rich because I'm, I'm smart and I work hard, and you're poor because you're stupid and lazy. And there's something very pernicious about that dynamic. What do you think about that? 
Well, I, I totally agree that actually this is, uh, well, we talked uh, we mentioned before, it's really a justification of that, which is very sophisticated. It's not entirely unconnected to the facts, because it is true that, uh, as I was saying before, and you were saying actually many rich people actually work quite hard, uh, it, and they, they do feel that they deserve that, and they have this righteousness, which, you know, in a positive way, you can say, well, you know, they might feel that there is some justification for this. On the negative side, you can see this is essentially an ideological screen. That is actually what Pareto was saying every elite projects, because every elite, of course, sees itself as indispensable, righteous, and absolutely necessary for the maintenance of such a society. And moreover, that righteousness has a sort of unpleasant associations with the views which existed, of course, in the early capitalism, where the poor were actually uh, uh, morally inferior. So it was not only the issue that they were poor, and then we don't care about them, but they are poor because they were absolutely morally, they sort of, uh, propagate, they, they are uh, dissolute, they don't want to work, they are lazy. So there was a very strong moralistic element. And you know, uh, since I come from a, a communist country, that anti-poor moralistic view was also, interestingly, under communism. Because if you were not working, you were somehow against the system. And that was the same, actually, if you look at the uh, uh, poor laws in, the, in England, that was the same moralistic element, which now, of course, we find with a new elite as well, uh, treating people who are poor as really inferior or deplorable. Okay, or deplorable. Bad word. Uh, I, we have time for one more round of questions. I'll take the woman here, the woman there, gentleman here. Um, hi, my name is Natalia Gutierrez. I'm a prospective student, and my question is, if politics is owned by the elite, by the 1%, who do you think is responsible for making the changes required to transform capitalism, and can we as citizens be involved in this process? Um, thank you. My name is Nikos Otiriu, and I'm a student in um, politics and communication here in LSE. Uh, first things first, thank you for adding another Greek world to the academic. <laughs> okay. as, as a Greek, uh, it's like a blessing to, to study academic English when we have a Greek okay. word. So anyway. you clear the word? Yeah, yeah, okay. clear, clear, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, uh, I would like to address the issue of billionaires. It's the first time in, in our history, in human history, that we have seen so many billionaires. And uh, I don't want to comment anything about billionaires. I want to listen from you if they create an inequality. I guess that somehow creates. And uh, my second question is about an inequality inside the billionaires, the fact that uh, most of them are males and not females. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And last word here. Hi, uh, I'm Thea Jans, and I work at Chatham House. And oh, I... I'm sorry, where are you? Uh, oh, she's up there. Up there. Hi. Uh, I had a question about um, the fact that I heard that in Sweden uh, everybody's income is available for everyone to check. Yeah, 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 and I was, regardless of this being ethical and of this being mm, desirable, do you think that if everybody's income was for everyone to check, including those of people that have very high incomes, that this would have a positive impact that would reduce inequality? Well, another round really uh, very, very good questions. Uh, first, uh, how will it change? It's, it's a, 
It's really a crucial question. I think that in democracies it is still uh, popular participation and uh, sort of participation in a political space in elections and in support of people who want to change the system is a sine qua non for a change. If people don't participate, the political process would remain in the hands of those who are actually not paying necessarily politicians in a very vulgar way, but finding the people who would be, who would be sort of sensitized to their issues and then essentially sort of helping their campaign. So I think popular participation, however silly it might seem, is really, it seems to me, absolutely crucial. And in technicalities, and I'm not political science, but one should really start thinking whether compulsory voting, for example, may be something that could be actually done. Uh, or one should also think of the fact, for example, that as you know, for the presidential elections in the US, the, the, the participation rates are really around 50%, which is also striking that actually half of the population really not only doesn't care, but doesn't want to invest any energy to vote on something which is extremely important. And even if the new election, if Trump is in the power or whatever, I still they don't expect that it's going to be like 80%. So it is really, uh, without participation, I think it's impossible to, to envisage a change. On the, on the billionaires, uh, that's very interesting because, of course, we have now for them data. I think the most recent number is about uh, 1,800 billionaires, and we have actually even uh, a sort of uh, studies of how they become billionaires. Very interesting because many of them are actually, some of them self-made, others through monopoly, rather inheritance. So it's actually, we can really distinguish between them. Um, and, of course, most of them are men, as, as you said. And uh, uh, I actually, what I th did in, uh, the have, in my earlier book, The Haves and the Have-Nots, I think it's interesting to look at wealth at the very top in terms of labor income. In other words, because the world is much richer now than it used to be in Roman time or you know, Byzantine time or you know, uh, Ming dynasty or whatever. Uh, but if you trans, uh, uh, convert these incomes into the days of labor or months of labor, because we know average wage, it's, it really gives you a different insight how actually they are rich compared to an ordinary individual worker. And there you have really interesting things. For example, in, in the book, but it was some time ago, uh, uh, Carlos Slim, in terms of number of people who uh, his wealth in translated the number of Mexican wages was probably the highest ever. You know, I was not looking at incomes of wealth, rather, of political leaders because many of them in the past treated obviously their own uh, wealth, the, the state wealth as their own. So it really becomes, you cannot really tell. But for example, in Roman times, you had actually, of course, extremely rich people, and you calculate their ratio between their wealth and wages. Well, Carlos Slim was way above that. So it's one way of actually sort of looking at what wealth, uh, really top wealth today represents. Um, for Sweden and checking of all incomes, I think in principle it is good. I have to say that I, uh, I yeah, I'm in favor of that, you know. I guess Trump is not. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, I do have a little bit of a, a 
I have a little bit of a reluctance to have, for example, for taxes, yes, I think because it's really incomes. What I'm not huge fan, because I've seen this already in Sweden happening, is that all transactions are transactions on your credit card and that actually every transaction is traceable. I think there is a little bit of an issue of privacy there and um, so they, this is my only qualifier. But when it comes to taxation and to incomes, I think several Nordic countries now have basically ability for you to check everybody else's uh, uh, income declaration. Okay. So, thank you very much. I think as true to form, Branko, you have made us think about inequality in new and different ways. And thank you very much for that. And we are delighted that you'll be spending some more time at the LSE going <laughs> forward so you can help us think about inequality in new and different ways. Thank you so much. It uh, was really a pleasure. You, huh? Thank you so much. Thank you.